This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome back for episode number 12 of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and with me here today is another fantastic guest. He is a developer at MindNode and an awesome conference speaker. It's Matthias Tretter. Welcome to the show, Matthias. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So uh, you are a developer at MindNode, um, or the company behind it, which is called Ideas on Canvas, right? Exactly. I've been with MindNode for about three years now, and it was a great journey. Like We're currently working on a big 5.0 update since a while, actually, and we're just finishing it. So it should be out soonish this year, I guess. And it's probably going to be our biggest release ever. So there's good stuff we're working on. You mean you mean to say it's the best version of MindNode you've ever made? Absolutely. And only ideas on Canvas can do this. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. So for those of you who don't know, uh, MindNode, it's an awesome app. I use it so much. Uh, it's a mind mapping tool for iOS and the Mac. And you're also on the Apple Watch as well, right? Exactly. It's kind of like a hobby project. We have a little Apple Watch app as well, where you can look at the outline of your mind maps there. So it's pretty nice for things like shopping lists and stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've been talking uh, about this quite a lot before in the past, but I use MindNote for all kind of crazy things, like probably things that it might not have been kind of made for, but I just find it to be an awesome tool for that. Things like uh, architecture, like designing architectures for an app and doing game design and kind of just putting a bunch of ideas on, on the canvas, if you will, <laughs> and, uh, and just seeing where it goes. It's uh, super nice to be able to visualize my thoughts in that way, I think. Well, that, that's always great to hear how people actually use our product and how they use it in very different ways. And that sounds like a pretty good idea to use it for stuff like planning out app architectures and stuff like this. That's pretty nice. Yeah, totally. So uh, we've met now at a few conferences uh, this fall. Uh, you've been doing a great new talk about sharing code between iOS and the Mac. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about kind of that work that you guys have been doing to uh, share more code between kind of both of the platforms that you work on? So MindNote started out roughly 10 years ago on the Mac. And back then, it was actually before iPhone OS 2.0. So there was no iOS App Store yet. And there obviously wasn't a Mac App Store yet. But we released MindNote on apple.com slash downloads back then. And it was a pretty good success back then. And after a couple of years, uh, MindNote also started, like we started MindNote on iOS. But back then, iOS devices weren't like today. They weren't as powerful. And it wasn't really clear where they would be going. So it was kind of a very different app on the iPhone than it was on the Mac. And we had two different code bases back then. There was MindNote on the Mac and MindNote on iOS. And they had little to no code sharing at all. And then with iOS 7, Basically, everything changed, like the whole UI paradigm of iOS changed a little bit. And we rethought how MindNode on iOS should look like. And we also took this chance because we still had two separate code bases back then to kind of 
consolidate our code and start to share code between iOS and macOS. We completely rewrote the iOS application for iOS 7 and then took that code and ported it back to the Mac. And that way, after a couple of months of pretty hard work and fixing all those compiler bugs over and over again, <laughs> we ended up with a shared code base, which we still use today and have a pretty good percentage of code shared between our iOS and macOS code base, which allows us to go forward more quickly. Nice. Yeah, that's always a good thing when you can, when you need to support multiple platforms, if you can have like a solid core that you can just build on top of. Uh, it's becoming much more predictable when you're working with it. And I guess also one thing that you touched on a little bit in your talk, I remember, is you don't want the users to kind of experience different results on different platforms. You want kind of the fundamentals and the behaviors of the app to remain the same. Exactly. So your business logic obviously should be the same on every platform. And for this, it's it's kind of important to share your code because you then you only have like a single place that you actually need to change if something changes, if your requirements change or something else. And that way it's easy to guarantee that your app works and behaves the same on, on both platforms or every platform that it runs on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I remember when G Rambo was on the show a couple of episodes back, we discussed a little bit about Mac development as well and some challenges where you know you may have model code that uses UI image and kind of we gave some tips on how to uh, make that compatible with the Mac. Uh, were there some other kind of big challenges that you guys were facing uh, when, in terms of being able to use your iOS code on the Mac that you kind of had to overcome? So in terms of sharing code between iOS and macOS, fortunately things get easier over time because like both APIs, um, like especially the Mac API tend to kind of develop towards their iOS equivalents. So there's a lot of classes now on macOS that have more or less the similar API on iOS or vice versa. But sometimes it's just the small little details um, that can bite you. For example, there is NS text alignment and both, uh, it's an enum and there are the same values on iOS and macOS with left, right, center, natural. But the devil kind of is in the detail because the underlying value is different. So on iOS, I think um, NS text alignment left or center, I don't know, like one of them defaults to one and the other to two, while on macOS, those two values are exchanged. So if you use the integer value to persist the text alignment, you kind of have to uh, take care of it when you use the same um, object on iOS and macOS. So if you use the same document on iOS as macOS, because then the text alignment suddenly changes. Oh, that, that must have been causing some really head scratching, invoking bugs, I guess, when you were syncing your data between the platforms. And then why is the nodes text alignment different? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's It's kind of stuff like this that's somewhat funny in a way, but also can be very frustrating if you if you try to work on an app that has shared code between iOS and macOS. Yeah, I can totally, totally understand that. Um, great. So another uh, topic of yours when you've been uh, talking at conferences has been accessibility. And you're one of these uh, people in the community who uh, evangelizes kind of accessibility and tries to uh, tries to give people some tips on how to make it easier to implement accessibility. Uh, so what kind of got you started with that, like uh, with getting into accessibility and and becoming kind of passionate around that? As with so many things in life, it kind of was by accident, actually. So 
I was never that much into accessibility in the past until at some point there was a user and her name was Jessica and she wrote us a support email and she asked back then whether our app MindNote support, uh, supports voiceover. And I was kind of puzzled by that question because MindNote as a mind mapping app is like a very visual app. So for me, it wasn't really clear how and why she as a visually disabled person would want to use mind mapping, would want to use our app with voiceover enabled. So I got kind of curious and started to mail back and forth with her and ask her a couple of questions. And then something interesting happened. She kind of convinced me that it's usable, that it's useful for her to use MindNote, to use a mind mapping tool as a visually impaired person. And that got me into accessibility. I started to look up the APIs, started to implement accessibility for our app. And I just feel that it's such an important topic because it helps so many people out there to, to use apps. And in the end, what we do, we build apps for people, right? We want to empower them and we want everyone to be able to use our apps. And Apple does a really great job with accessibility on their platform. So I just think it's very important to support and use these tools that we got. Yeah, I totally agree. I think accessibility is one of those things where, like you say, the APIs are so good and there's so much you get for free that is built into the system but it's kind of hard to know where to start. So getting some information like from you or for some of the other people in the community who have been like very big on accessibility, I think it's awesome because that kind of gives you the confidence to kind of start looking into the APIs more and realizing, wow, this is not so hard. And there's so many things I get for free. For example, if I use a table view, uh, you know, it's kind of accessible by default. I need to just like add accessibility support to my own controls and to, you know, make some tweaks here and there. Exactly. So especially if you use default controls, you get so much stuff for free and it might that you not even need to do anything at all to make your app accessible. And also since I think it's since Xcode 9, there's the Accessibility Inspector, which is a, an awesome, amazing tool to debug the accessibility in your app. So you can attach it to the simulator, you can attach it to a device. And it can run audits of your device. You can go over every control and see the accessibility label and hints. And it's an amazing tool and makes it so much more easy to, to debug your app with voiceover enabled. All right. Uh, so what do you say? Should we start diving into our questions and topics? Yeah, sure. Let's start. Let's do it. So as you know, this show is all about answering questions and talking about topics that were submitted by you, the listeners. And it's really kind of what makes the show uh, the show. So I'm really, really happy whenever someone sends in a question or a topic. Uh, and it's really cool to see all these different topics that come in as well. Uh, so keep doing that. Uh, keep sending in anything that comes to mind that you would like us to talk about on this show. And the way you submit a question or a topic is that you go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, where there's a form that you can fill in. Or you can simply tweet anything that you want us to talk about to at Swift by Sundell on Twitter. So to kick things off for this episode, we're going to start with a question from Swifty. And this person asks, do you guys use auto layout or snap kits? Uh, do you have tips on how to debug auto layout issues? So what do you say, Matthias? Do you, uh, do you use auto layout to lay out your mind maps? That's a, that's a great question. It's like one of those controversial topics where people really have opinions about. Yeah. 
So we do use auto layout, but to be honest, up until a few months ago, we had zero lines of auto layout in our app. So for the longest of time, I was actually against using auto layout because I kind of love CG Rectivite. It's simple, it's easy to debug, and it doesn't really, it doesn't break randomly as I had it with auto layout a few times. But then at some point I thought, why not revisit auto layout? Because a lot of things actually have, has changed over the past couple of years. And with layout anchors, it's, it's way more easy nowadays than with, for example, the visual language format and stuff that we had in the past. So I started to revisit auto layout and it does have its usages and I think I, I use it nowadays when I feel like it's appropriate. For example, I was working, like we are we're redoing the, the UI for, for our iOS app um, with a more or less completely new UI panel based that fits right into iOS 11. So I had to implement this panel that needs to be either on the leading or trailing edge that needs to automatically snap to the safe area insets to that needs to resize whenever the keyboard comes up. So there's a lot of constraints going on there. So auto layout was the perfect fit for this, of course, because it was super easy to set up a couple of constraints and then the panel resized automatically. Yeah, that sounds like a great use case. Uh, I totally agree with you that I also apply auto layout where I think it makes sense. And I definitely wasn't the biggest auto layout fan either. Uh, I was kind of, you know, in the beginning when there was this ASCII art, uh, like you say, the visual format, and there were so many situations you could run into where you had uh, unsatisfiable constraints problems. And I was like, I am perfectly happy with my CG rect math because <laughs> guess what? Math does not end up having unsatisfiable constraints, <laughs> right? Um, so I, I, I use that for the longest time, but I agree with you with the, especially with the layout anchors, the API, because auto layout was always kind of a super cool technology with a pretty hard to use API. But now with layout anchors, it's so much easier to use. And like you say, whenever you have something that has like a lot of, lot of factors it can depend on, uh, whether that is, you know, layout wise or things like the keyboard and things, it's auto layout is just such a nice tool for that. Absolutely. So it's like with, with most tools, try to use them whenever you feel like they're appropriate. So yeah, I was against it for a while. Now I'm not against it anymore. I use it and I think it's awesome in, in certain ways. It has its problems in others. So kind of like my ideal thing, sometimes I wish I would, I could directly access the cassowary constraints over, which all the layout is based on and to just uh, like give it a bunch of constraints and that it would give me a bunch of CG regs back and then I could do with the CG regs whatever I want. Like for example, background layouting and stuff like this. I feel like this would give me the best of both worlds, but not everyone might agree on that. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I feel like, and maybe there's a way that I don't know of to do this, but um, let's say you are debugging your app and you are breaking in a breakpoint. It would be super cool to be able to say like print, uh, auto uh, print constraint dot rect or something or dot point and you would get the computed current rectangle or point. You can of course always uh, print the uh, like a fr like a frame or something, but sometimes you just want to see kind of you know the actual kind of resolved value of the constraint itself. Yeah, that would be amazing. Could also be a kind of troublesome because like one constraint 
doesn't really lead to a fixed result, right? Because yeah. like a, a ton of constraints add up to, to the actual result, to the actual frame. But if there were a, a way to like better debug it, that would be great. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of debugging, I think there has been a lot of improvements there as well. Like now when you're running in the debug, uh, a debug build, then you get a lot more information in the, in the console. Uh, so to kind of segue into how to debug auto layout issues, uh, the way I usually do it is, first of all, whenever I use auto layout, I try to keep things as simple as possible. So that because I've seen so many views where you have, you know, 20, 25 different constraints, like a large number, uh, and you get some kind of exception or something doesn't work out. And then it's like really hard to know what went wrong. It's really hard to decipher. So usually what I try to do is to split my UI, UI up into different views and compose those instead of having everything in one kind of big view and to use as few constraints as possible per view. Absolutely, that's that's a great approach. And I think what I tend to do as well, kind of implicitly. Um, and in terms of debugging, whenever there is a problem, I kind of try to isolate the source by, it doesn't really work in every case, but sometimes it works to remove some views from your hierarchy. So there are less views and less constraints on the screen so that you can actually find out where the problem comes from. Also like setting identifiers on your layout constraints helps a lot with, with identifying which constraint might actually be the problem. Yeah, that's a really great tip. Uh, especially when you have something which it's a little bit more advanced when you are doing something like greater than equals or, or when you're not just simply snapping to a, um, to a to an anchor where you're like doing something a bit more complex. I usually also try to use identifiers because it's so much easier to debug. Exactly, yeah. So that that already helps a lot. But there's still like cases where it's kind of tough to figure out where the actual problem comes from. And I recently stumbled upon a pretty great website, which is called wtfautolayout.com. <laughs> yeah, it's a great wide one. Wide failure auto layout. Yeah, it's a nice one. And you can actually just paste in your error message there and it will try to kind of translate it into a language that's easier understandable. And it has already helped me quite a bit in the past on trying to figure out which constraint actually is the problem. Yeah, that's a really good tip. We'll put a link in the show notes to that website. It's a really good one. Um, do you use any kind of wrapper for auto layout like Snapkit or cartography, or do you just use the layout anchors now? Mostly we are just using layout anchors now. It has gotten so much more easy. The API has gotten so much more better that I don't see a lot of need in using a third party uh, tool for this to make it even more easy. We do use a very small wrapper. I don't know if you've seen the blog post and actually there's also an episode on Swift Talk by Chris Eithoff where he has like this very small wrapper that's, that's a very, it uses a very uh, neat trick with, um, with generics and key paths and it adds up to, to very easy to read and, and super nice API to actually add constraints to your views. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen that. It's a really, really cool uh, little, it's so thin also, uh, just a couple of lines of code that just makes it so much easier to read. I will put a link in the show notes to that as well. Yeah, that sounds great. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I'm the same. I now nowadays just use layout anchors because it's uh, built in and it's easy enough to use that I don't feel like I need to wrap anything. But 
it's like with everything, if you prefer some other API like SnapKit or Cartography, um, you know, go for it. If it makes you more productive, it makes your layouts easier to understand. Great, so we're gonna move on now to the next question. And this one comes from Nicolas Cuclion. And he asks us, how big are you on the iPad and how much time do you spend on one? So uh, what's your iPad usage like? I personally really love the iPad. I think it's a great device. And especially with iOS 11, which made it just so much more, so much better, so much more productive with the drag and drop with the new multitasking API. I think it's a really great device. And I do actually spend a lot of time on my iPad because at home, I don't really have a fast computer anymore. Like I have a MacBook Air that's, I think it's like five or six years old with four gigabyte of memory. So I tend to use my iPad for most of my tasks because it's faster than my MacBook. Yeah, and that's a really cool situation that, that we are in right now. It's like even the, the iPhone 10 is like faster than many MacBooks, yeah. which is, you know, it's amazing to, you know, the these A series of, of chips that Apple has made, how like incredibly fast they are. What kind of iPad do you use? I do use an iPad Pro, like not the newest one, but uh, the one uh, from, from the year before. That's a pretty great device. I still love it. How about you? I actually don't have an iPad right now, uh, which is pretty crazy. I also, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's a great device, but I just haven't bought one in recent years. I think my iPad that I have is like iPad 3. So I just, I just never use it um, because it's so old. But I'm, I am planning to buy a new one very soon because I have some new projects that I want to do, which uh, I want to do on the iPad first. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm definitely getting one very soon, uh, but I don't have an iPad right now. So what kind of tasks do you do on the iPad? And uh, kind of why do you, you know, it's faster, you said, but is there something else that makes you kind of prefer it for certain tasks? I think the iPad is really great for consuming, at least for me, because whenever I try to create stuff, it's mostly programming these days. And while there's uh, playgrounds on the iPad, most of my programming is still done on the Mac. So the Mac is still the device I use for creation, for creating stuff. But the iPad is just amazing for consuming stuff, whether it's watching videos, browsing the web, or whether it's mind mapping. I kind of like, uh, love mind mapping on the iPad. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I can't wait to, to try out my node on, on an iPad, like when I get one, uh, because I can really think that it's, uh, it's really nice. I do love it on the Mac as well, but I can see that, you know, the drag and drop thing can make it really cool. Yeah, that sometimes feels like very, very natural for, for stuff like this, the direct interaction. All right, that was a really great question. It's always super interesting to hear because some people, they are really, really into the iPad and some people are really into the Mac and some people a little bit, a little bit of both. So it's always interesting to hear how people prefer to work and what devices they prefer. So we're going to move on now to the next question. And this one comes from Filip Fediakov. And he's asking a little bit about the best practices for designing using MVC. So he asks, how can you refactor from a massive view controller and how to use MVC properly? 
So, and he also asks us to not talk about MVVM <laughs> because it seems like that's usually the answer when people talk about how to fix MVC is, ah, just use MVVM. <laughs> uh, so let's focus on how we can actually improve MVC, which is something that I, uh, I really like to do. So do you have some tips on how to avoid a massive view controller? That, that's a good question. There, I feel like there has been a lot of recent debates about this topic again. Like there were a lot of blog posts about MVVM and MVC and whether it's good or bad. And same as with auto layout or manual uh, layout, everyone kind of has their opinions on this topic. So let's try to, to approach it from a pragmatic angle. If you've like heard my conference talk about sharing code, um, then you might already know that we use MVC a lot in our app. Like most of our app is still based on MVC and it works quite well if you do it right. So obviously one problem is the massive view controller, but I don't think that's a problem of MVC. It's more or less a problem of how it's applied in a lot of ways. Um, so let's try to, to break it down and how we can actually work around the massive view controller problem. Because I guess everyone kind of knows the situation where your view controller ends up with a very long list of protocols that it implements and all this kind of stuff that the view controller suddenly does, which isn't actually its job to do. So I feel like if you try to put or to see the, the view controller as part of the view layer, more or less, it probably is easier to, to keep it smaller because then it's only concerned about dealing with its own view, about setting it up, about the lifecycle management, which view will appear, view did appear. And you can move all these other things that it might end up doing into other controls, into other objects, into other classes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I tend to think about it the same way. It's like no matter which kind of design pattern you choose, I mean, all the design patterns, they come with trade-offs and MVVM can be a really great tool and other kind of architectures can also be a great tool, but uh, I don't think there's anything kind of inherent to MVC that just makes it bad. It's uh, kind of how you use it and how you apply it. So what I usually like to do is to not just see my app as it just needs to have kind of one level of MVC. It can have many, many different levels of MVC. So I use child view controllers a lot. I actually wrote a blog post about it just a couple of hours ago uh, on how to use child view controllers for specific tasks. Like for example, if you wanna show a loading indicator, you can actually do that using a child view controller. You don't have to have like a base class or a you know big view controller that, that has all those responsibilities you can uh, separate things out, uh, even with MVC. There's nothing in MVC that says that you have to have all the logic in the view controller. It, uh, it can definitely be moved to different places. Exactly. Child view controllers are actually a very smart approach for, for dealing with this kind of stuff. And it also makes it more reusable because I guess one other thing a lot of people might end up doing is introducing some form of base view controller that holds like common operations every view controller should do, like as you just said, loading stuff. And you can always refactor factor it out and use child view controls instead. That way it's 
easy or reusable and you don't end up with this God view controller class that does everything, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's usually the problem uh, is that you start by adding, let's say, just loading indicators. Like you add that to your base class. Like almost every view controller in my app needs uh, some way of show showing a loading indicator. Well, let me just make a base class that does that. Well, the problem is then you also need something else and something else and something else. And all of a sudden, this base view controller is all of a sudden like a do it everything view controller. And yeah, that is usually a problem. And also when you want to kind of pick specific UI kits base classes that you want to use, it's problematic if you have your own base class. So as an example, if you want to use a UI table view controller for a table view, you can't do that if you have a single base class in your app. Exactly. It's, it's kind of funny that you mention UI table view controller because that's like one of those classes I secretly wish that they wouldn't exist. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I, I feel like it, it tends to, to add up to, to this problem because, I mean, it's super convenient to use UI table view controller and it certainly has its places, but it defaults to the view controller being the data source and the delegate by default. And I feel like this is one reason why a lot of people do this and then they put all the the UI table view data source methods in their view controller while it actually should be a separate class because the UI table view data source is part of the model layer but now you add it to the view controller and then the view controller now deals with the model layer with the view layer and some controller code sprinkled on top of it and then you end up with this massive view controller problem yeah, I can, I can, I definitely agree that it's in many ways a slippery slope down to the uh, massive view controller. Uh, but I also see it. It depends a little bit on the situation. So I don't really see the um, the table view data source as being a pure kind of model code. It's more like the data binding, right? Like going from the model to the view, and kind of just looking at it. I think just from the outside, I think that is actually a pretty good job for a view controller. But as you say, it's usually it comes with like it just adds up, right? And it just makes it bigger and bigger. So I personally, I usually actually start out with putting my table view data source code in my view controller. But as soon as I start that it needs to, you know, have more logic and it it's like a bigger implementation, I always move that out. And the same thing goes if I need to share, for example, if I have like a uh, a certain type of list that I'm displaying in many different types of view controllers, I usually abstract that out into a data source object that I can then plug in in many different view controllers whenever I need it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of similar to what, to the approach I use. And I feel like in every app I work on, I end up with some sort of data source generic uh, object in the end to make to especially make static table use a little bit easier. I mean, we do have static table views with storyboards, but I'm not a big fan of storyboards. And as far as I know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it used to be like this in the past. It was like an all in or nothing approach. So you either had a static table view in a storyboard or a dynamic table view in code. But most of the time, what I actually need is some form of static table view where I can still add and remove certain cells depending on the state of the app or something like this. So usually I end up with having some form of data source model object. Yeah, it's usually a good abstraction, I think. So um, a lot of conversations, uh, including the one the one we just had, <laughs> when we talk about these problems, are usually like, 
how you kind of should have done things from the beginning. <laughs> but let's say now you are in the situation, you have a massive view controller. Uh, what do you think are some tips to get out of that situation? Like how do you refactor your way out of a massive view controller in your experience? So that's kind of a, a task that comes along every so often. So we also have these massive view controllers in our app. And I think like one of them is like super big with like a year ago, it had over 3000 lines of code and now we're down to under 2000. So it's still big, but way better than 3000. Yeah. Um, I think like uh, what I try to do is basically following the separation of concerns. So I try to ask myself, does this functionality actually belong here in the view controller? And if not, which is most often the case with these kind of view controllers, I try to rip it out into some form of a helper objects that are easier reusable, that are testable. And then you can just use dependency injection to pass this object into your view controller and everything should work as it used to. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I, I try to do the same thing where one thing as a concrete example is like data loading. A lot of uh, view controllers I see, they do their own data loading and they do their own like data to model mapping. And that is something that is usually kind of easy to abstract out and then into like a data loader or something. And then you might have like a cache that you're caching things and the view controller is doing that itself. Well, then you can also kind of move that out and maybe move that together with the data loader to make some kind of service that your view controller can just call, get the model, you know, render it, done. So you can kind of piece by piece uh, move things out into kind of separate objects. Exactly. I think that's like, that's probably the most important part of it to do it piece by piece, not not try trying not to tackle too many things uh, at one time, because that way you and probably end up with a broken view controller. Just do it piece by piece. Just as I said, we, we've moved our view controller down from 3000 lines to 2000 lines. There's still way more work to do to get it to the size that I would like it to be, but still we're moving piece by piece and every little piece that you can rip out helps. Yeah, and I think that's totally like the right mindset for so many things. Like, just start somewhere. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, there might be many, many reasons why this happened, but just try to move to kind of a better uh, a better future <laughs> yeah. where you were just like constantly kind of refactoring your way there. And that is great that you mentioned that because that is a great segue into the next question, <laughs> which uh, comes from Robert. And he asks, uh, what is your feeling when you need to make changes in code that was created a long time ago? Uh, do you refactor the whole feature or do you try to fit in your thinking from time to time? So yeah, you just mentioned like, you know, you've been constantly kind of refactoring this uh, big view controller into a smaller, smaller version and separate objects. But do you usually combine that with feature work or is that like a separate thing you do or how do you look at that? Yeah, I actually kind of tweeted about this recently. So whenever we do refactoring, we usually just, we don't do it just for the sake of it, but with a specific goal in mind. So we did a lot of refactoring over the last year, but usually it was part of some feature that we wanted to implement or we always had to ask ourselves the question, are there any other benefits if we do refactor this part? So for example, we, we switched in our iOS app, we had a custom document browser and now with iOS 11, we're going to switch to UI document browser view controller. 
And along the way, basically I refactored the whole setup of the whole flow between view controllers and I introduced a flow controller for this, uh, along with a protocol-based dependency injection thing. And it definitely was way more work than it would have been to just replace our custom document browser with UI document browser, but it helped a lot um, afterwards because now we're moving to to inner purchases. So we, we have we can now have a viewer mode and a fully unlocked app. And it helped a lot to pass around, for example, the app mode between view controllers so that every view controller knows whether it's currently in viewer mode or it can actually edit the document at the moment. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great approach to kind of combine feature work with refactors and to, before you start diving in, because when you're gonna write a new feature, you're usually very excited about it and you wanna just like get in there and you know build a feature and ship it. Uh, but it's a great opportunity to also look at it kind of from a bigger picture and see, okay, so if I add this new feature, like a new document browser, like you mentioned, uh, does this actually add to my tech depth or does it reduce it? Like, does it make the app more complex and harder to maintain or does it make it easier to maintain? And if you can combine both of, the, both of those efforts, uh, then it's great. I mean, it's a big win and just makes shipping the feature even more exciting because you also made your maintenance work easier. So I have also, like like you mentioned, I also have an example of, uh, of when I recently applied this, uh, where in one of the apps that I've been working on lately, we, ha we had like a very custom way of building UI in some of the views. And all we were really doing was just lists. Like we didn't need this fancy uh, advanced way that we were using. So I just refactored it to just use UI table view. And I did that as part of adding some new features as well. So it kind of, you know, was easier to add these new features because we were just using UI table view like the standard. Uh, and, you know, it, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain going forward. So it's, you know, just a win-win uh, to do that both at the same time. Exactly. And those are always kind of like my favorite pull requests where in the end you end up removing code of your app or removing more code of your app than you're adding. Yeah, it's the best. It's like the title of the pull request is add this new feature and it's like a minus thousand <laughs> yeah. lines of code. It's like, how did this even happen? <laughs> exactly, that's the best. Yeah, it's really, yeah, it's the best. I think kind of usually, so in some teams I've been working on, there's been a little bit of a, like a conflict between like new product development and kind of addressing tech depth and maintenance. And I think you can get rid of so many of these conflicts by doing this approach where you can, you know, you have like kind of an agreement in the team and say, you know, every time we go in and we touch a certain part of the app, we also try to leave it in kind of a better state than what we found it. Yeah, I love the rule. Isn't it called like the, the Boy Scout or Girl Scout rule or something like this? Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the Scout rule. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good one. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great approach. And we do this all the time. So whenever we touch some part of our app, we try to leave it in a better state than it was. Whether it's just adding Objective-C generics for old code or nullability annotations, or just doing very small refactorings, like renaming a variable to be more obvious, changing the code style and stuff like this. Yeah, especially the variable part. Like sometimes you will encounter variables that you have a really hard time understanding what they mean. And once you figured out what they meant, then why not just change it to something more obvious? Because then the next person, which might be you in three months, <laughs> doesn't have to kind of refigure it out again. Absolutely. That's, that's always, I think that's what I'm trying to do 
also. So if if it takes me a while, like if I come back to some code that was written a while ago, either by me or someone else, and it takes me a while to understand what this code is trying to do, then I'm trying to figure out ways how I can reduce this amount of time it took me the next time someone else needs to touch this code and just make things more obvious. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good, really good tip. All right, so I think we have time for uh, one more question. And this one comes from Daniel Sousa. And he asks, how do you become a great iOS developer? Do you have some specific books or paths that you would like to suggest? So what tips do you have for kind of increasing your skills and you know, becoming a better developer and improving as you go? That, that's a really great question. I guess it kind of boils down on how to become great at anything. It's practice, I guess. So like when I started developing, I think it was at the age of nine that I got a programming book from my dad and it was about programming in C. And I still remember like one of the first things I did, there was this example in the book where it was simple like input, computation, output programs on the command line. So the problem was kind of to compute the ideal weight. And it was a simple program. It just printed enter your height in centimeters. Then you entered it. And I think it did some computation and then it put out your ideal weight for this height. And I didn't understand anything at all. There was like this int main and arc C, arc V, printf, scanf. I had no idea what was going on there, but I just like typed it into my Bolon C compiler and it kind of compiled and worked and it was, it was magical. I loved it, but I didn't really like that. I had to enter my height in centimeters. I felt like no sane person would enter their height in centimeters. I wanted to enter it in meters. So I tried to figure out how to, to change this program so that I could enter my height in meters. And it was really tough. It, it took me like forever. I had to research data types. Now I had to uh, input a float instead of an integer. I had to research scanf and how to make formal the text input. But at some point I got it to work and it kind of was like the best feeling because I made it work and I made it work on my own without the help of my dad back then. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that learning is always kind of about leaving your comfort zone and that you shouldn't be afraid to fail, just repeat and try again. And that you should just play around with different ideas and, and do stuff. So it's, it's great to, to read things, to listen to podcasts, to, to watch videos, but in the end, you need to build stuff if you want to improve as a developer. And at the best, you try to build something that you'd actually like to use. I think that's the best thing you could do. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think, you know, practice makes perfect, like they say. Uh, it's kind of a classic saying, and it's, for me at least, it's very true. I mean, everyone learns in different ways, but for me at least, you know, I need to try things out and I need to uh, use the things that I'm learning about. So I think I mentioned this uh, quite a lot of times before, but I love to use playgrounds. In fact, if I look at my desktop right now, I have seven <laughs> playgrounds on the, just on the desktop. I use them a lot. I fire up one almost every day and I try something out. And, you know, it's like if you want to become a great app developer or you want to become a great iOS developer, just build a lot of apps. But 
that's easier said than done because you might not have lots of ideas for apps. You might not have the time to build full apps. Well, you can build a lot of prototypes. That's what I do. I Right now, I'm working on two games, but I probably have written like 50 different game prototypes in the last year. <laughs> and that, you know, it's fine. You don't have to ship everything you build. Sometimes you can build something just because it's fun or because you want to learn. Exactly. And, and learning is really like a lot of fun. So as you just mentioned, playgrounds are really great for trying out stuff. You can even do them on your iPad or on your Mac, however you prefer. And you can just hit it up and try out different things as I did back when I was nine. So just playing around with, with small changes can, can also help a lot. Like there's a lot of pretty great open source projects out there, whether it's full apps or just frameworks that you can download and play around with them and change small things or even like send a pull request over if you feel add something to this. This helps a lot in, in getting better and like trying out different things. Yeah. One other thing that I'd like to bring up is kind of how you approach new ideas. So, you know, as we become better and better at what we do, we also tend to become kind of more strongly opinionated because we've know, we know what we like and we form an opinion about how we work and what tools we like to use. But I think it's super important to try to keep an open mind. And whenever you hear something which is different or new, instead of kind of dismissing it or, you know, thinking that it's, you know, what is that? Oh, no, I, I don't want to use that. Try it. Like, I hear so many people, for example, dismissing like React Native because it's JavaScript. And I'm not the biggest fan of JavaScript either, but I at least want to try it and, you know, try and see what it's like before I dismiss it, uh, before I decide whether it's something I want to use or not. And even if I decide not to use it, I can still be kind of inspired and learn from from it, even though I don't want to use it in kind of production. Absolutely. I think that's that's like very important to try to keep an open mind with stuff. Like as I mentioned before with, with all the layout, of, I kind of had made up my mind already. But I figured at some point I should go back and just try it again and see whether stuff improved and whether I like it now. And I feel like it should be like this with a lot of things to that we try to not make up our mind too quickly, try stuff out and even revisit it after some time, whether stuff has changed or whether our opinion might have changed, actually. All right. So I think that's all that we have time for for this episode. So if you want to get notified of new episodes and new guests that are going to be on the show, make sure to follow Swift by Sundell on Twitter and make sure to also subscribe to this podcast in your podcast player of choice so that you'll get notified whenever a new episode comes out. So all that remains now uh, to end this episode is just to thank you very much, Matthias, for joining me on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. It was great to be here. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, a lot of great discussions. And I also want to thank everyone who sent in the questions and topics. Keep them coming. So, Matthias, if people want to follow your work and the things that you do, where should they go? I'm more or less M yellow on every platform out there. So it's a zero instead of an O. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the easiest. So, yeah, it's either Twitter or GitHub or whatever. Usually it's, it's M yellow. Awesome. And you can find me on Twitter at John Sundell, and you can find everything about this podcast and the weekly blog at swiftbysundell.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you on the next episode.